Friends, thank you so much for your patience and welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral. I'm Tricia Hillis, I'm the Canon Pastor here and we are delighted that you can join us this evening. And we hope that you know that you are always welcome here in this cathedral space. Indeed, for those of you who might work locally, we'd love you to know that the cathedral is open from early on from quiet, for quiet reflection in the mornings, which might just be perfect for those times when the commute has been a little frantic, but also for evensong at 5 p.m. So if you should find yourself wanting to step out of your office for a few moments of musical and reverent thinking space, do think of us. But it feels really fitting to us that we're holding this discussion and debate in this particular historic room. It's where Sir Christopher Wren is buried. His tomb is inscribed with a Latin phrase, non sibi sed bono publico, not for his own profit, but for the public good. And it is for the public good that we hold this kind of conversation here. Through the St. Paul's Institute, we're seeking to engage with our community in the city, exploring questions around morality and ethics, particularly as they relate to human flourishing and the common good, and through the lens especially of finance, business, democracy and the economy. It is our vision that this cathedral will regain and keep hold of its ancient role, a place for public discussion and debate. Tonight's event is part of that. It's part of our Democracy and the Common Good series. That's a national conversation that's underway, which seeks to emphasize the value of the common good as we look about the opportunities and the anxieties that face our society. Turning to our specific topic for this evening, a quote. The welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income. Words from the Nobel Prize winning economist Simon Kutnez in 1934. He was one of the architects of GDP the monetary value of the value, measure of the value of goods and services produced by a country and commonly used as a comparator for nation's economic performances. He, one of the people who designed the system, recognized its limits, suggesting that perhaps it doesn't simply tell us the whole story. We're going to hear tonight from friends at Christian Aid, our partner in this event, and from experts in economic research and the government's civil society strategy. We're going to consider how best to build an economy that's based on sustainable and ethical wealth creation. You're welcome and indeed you are encouraged, please, to share your thoughts this evening. This is not a one-way or an exclusive conversation. So if you would like to, and we hope you will, please do consider using the Twitter hashtag, which is hashtag measuring growth, and also use our space for questions and discussion, which will happen in about 45 minutes time. 
We're delighted that Christine Allen, who's Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Christian Aid, will moderate the discussion this evening. And I'm particularly delighted now to hand over to our friend, Amanda Mukwashi, who is the Chief Executive of Christian Aid. Would you please join me in welcoming Amanda? feel very short. <clears throat> okay, thank you so much, uh, Tricia, for that, uh, for that welcome. Uh, I've been to St. Paul's Cathedral before, but I didn't come down here, so I didn't realize that you had such a beautiful and large uh, premises. <clears throat> but I'm, let me just start by saying thank you for inviting me. And um, I'm really privileged, I think, because uh, on the panel with me are some specialists, some economists. And I have to say, when my team said to me, would you go and speak? I thought, I'm not an economist. What am I going to say? <clears throat> and so um, to be true to myself, uh, I like to describe myself as a development practitioner. And uh, I also like to say that I'm a village girl, and therefore I like to tell stories because I grew up on stories. And so if you allow me this evening, as I speak to uh, the subject that, uh, that we're talking about, I would like to speak as a village girl telling stories. Over the last six months since I joined Christian Aid, one of the things that uh, I told myself was, go and see the work that the organization does. Go and try to understand the impact on the co affected communities, so that when you speak and when you try to bring about change in the organization, then you are actually doing so from the lived realities of those that are affected uh, by inequality, injustice, and a loss of dignity. And so it's from some of these trips that I have made and some of the individuals that I have met and some of the communities that I've visited that I tell you um, what I see, what I've learned, and um, hopefully something that's going to be useful in our debate. I went to Brazil uh, a few months ago. Brazil is the 10th largest economy in the world and the biggest in Latin America. Two decades of growth reduced absolute poverty, and so we had some, something to celebrate. But Brazil remains one of the most unequal countries in the world. About uh, half the population receives 10% of total household incomes, while the other half holds 90%. And I could go on and give you statistics, but I'm not going to do that because I claimed right at the beginning that I'm not an economist. But what I saw when I went there, I was in Sao Paulo, was that there were so many ho homeless people, the working poor, people who actually had jobs but unable to afford any housing. They were on the streets with their children and they were coming together to mobilize to try and address what they saw as an injustice. The impact, the trickle down that had been expected had not reached uh, some of the most marginalized in Brazil. 
Massive inequalities mean that social groups such as Afro-descendants remain excluded. Gender-based violence uh, is highest in Latin America, and Brazil is not exception to that. And as I spoke to individuals, we went into their homes, they invited us in really, really small places where they said, come in, come and see where we live so that you can understand whether it's on the streets or it's in a little box. We want you to really understand what our life is about. What became clear to me was that uh, economic growth, despite the steady rate uh, with a few blips and hitches, had not actually translated itself into the lived realities of quite a lot of people, millions of people in Brazil. One more thing that I heard and I saw, speaking to the churches and also to some of our partners who work with, on the, with <coughs> indigenous peoples in the Amazon, what was very clear is that although the Amazon is home to indigenous people, that belt is also um, uh, attractive for economic activities, whether it's dams, whether it's uh, electricity, the different um, activities that mean, that contribute to wealth accumulation. But the impact of it in terms of displacement and the impact of it not just on people, but also on planet, uh, remains unconsidered, and I choose that word quite deliberately. Um, from Brazil, before that, I had gone to Bangladesh, and so if you can just come with me to Bangladesh. I met about 10 human rights defenders from the Dalit community, and uh, I'm, I'm originally from Zambia, and in the Southern African region, we have uh, the, the San people, or the Basara, or other people might know them as the, the Bushmen, but you know, the indi indigenous group of people that somehow are <coughs> excuse me, seem to always be excluded out of mainstream economic activity. But when I met the Dalits, the human rights defenders, um, I have to say that it gave me food for thought. I, I had to stop. Um, these were the, the 10 uh, young people that I met. Some of them were trying to get an education. Christian Aid and our partners were working with them to really try and see how we could support them to self-actualize. And yet, when they shared their stories with me, they still talked about moving around with their own glasses and their own caps in the bags because when they went to meet with the central or devolved government, they were not allowed to drink from the same cups because they were not quite equal. Bangladesh is considered a developing country. Almost a third of its 150 million people live in extreme poverty. In the last decade, the country has recorded GDP growth rates above 5% due to development of microcredit and the garment industry. And so when you look at GDP and where Bangladesh is, you see that it is, you would assume that it's growing, and if you're a village girl like me, you would assume that that would then translate in terms of benefits realization to everybody. But it doesn't quite work that way. For the six million Dalits, economic growth will not necessarily reach them nor translate into a life of dignity. 
they are not considered equal or deserving of equal benefits. Every day, people will walk down the streets of Dhaka and never look back or even think about who keeps the streets or the sewer systems clean. The Dalits are unseen. The economic system doesn't recognize them. They are overlooked from sight and mind. Caste and occupation-based discrimination remains one of the most severe and forgotten human rights abuses of the 21st century. The Dalits in Bangladesh face various forms of discrimination and challenges due to their social status. The majority live in poverty, receive poor wages, experience segregation in various forms, including rigid occupation, have less access to basic amenities, and have lower levels of education and literacy. If the economy, and therefore economic growth, is a system by which wealth is created and used, then the lived realities of billions of people on the planet suggest that the system has either malfunctioned and needs revisiting, or perhaps it needs an overhaul. So that's my background, that's, that's, my, that's my story, that's where I'm coming from. I could tell you story after story after story that is not folklore, that is not um, a myth, but that tells you about the lived realities of people in countries where a pursuit for economic growth uh, and uh, an understanding of the success of economic growth models has meant that actually so many people's lives are not touched positively. Christian aid is informed by a theology of vision of human flourishing. We start off on the basis that everybody was created equal. There are no second class citizens in God's kingdom. <coughs> we are all equal and deserving of dignity. I was um, trying to think about how am I going to talk about the theology behind in a way that it's not just me reading, but me talking about what I really try to understand about what the Bible tells me. And so I was reading the Beatitudes. And do you know, I've always looked at Matthew 5, the first sort of nine uh, verses that, you know, that talk about uh, uh, in terms of the Beatitudes as... Um, if you don't do this, then this is what will happen. If you don't do, you know, uh, I've always seen it very much in black and white. And then I've heard a lot of preachers uh, talk about it almost like a justification for you to be poor, for you to be left out. But I was looking at it and I thought to myself, I don't think this is what Jesus Christ meant. I think when you look at that and really try to analyze it, and connect it with other scripture, what you realize is that he was so speaking to the characteristics of the world that he would like us to live in. The characteristics of equality, equity, dignity, uh, compassion, uh, mutuality, collectivity, that we are one uh, group of people. And that if we're to flourish, then it's not just the money element of us. It is, it's the mind, it's the body, it's the soul, it's the planet that, uh, that we've been given custodian on. 
and that we cannot survive one without the other. As human beings, we depend on the planet, and the planet needs us to also flourish. And so we need to find that equilibrium that means that you know, our progression, our evolution, our development as human beings is not one at the expense of millions or billions of other people, and it's not at the expense of the planet. And once I finished thinking my way through that, I thought to myself, yes, um, the theology behind we were all created equal, and God has put us in here to, to flourish. I have come so that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. My understanding of abundance is not just money. Let me, I'm finishing now. Uh, I don't know who's keeping time, but uh, okay. Um, so based on that, Christian Aid really believes that uh, when we look at poverty, therefore, it's multidimensional. It is not just one, it's not a linear thing. And uh, you're not just, it's not just about income poor, poverty. It's not just about education. It's not just about access to health. It's, it's about well-being. I was listening to one of the programs on BBC over the weekend. I think it was BBC, but it could have been Sky or another channel. And they were talking about uh, the changing nature of medicine. And that when you go to visit your doctor and you say, I'm not feeling well, and you say, you know, there's this that's wrong with me. The questions they now ask you is, you know, what is your diet like? What do you eat? What is your day like? Tell us about what you do. And I guess they do that because they they, we are learning more as humanity. We're getting more knowledge. And part of that knowledge is the understanding that uh, it's not as easy as I've got an earache and therefore you give me something for, for the ear. That actually, there's a whole person that is existing. And these things all come together. And I think you can take that from the individual to the collective. And so when you look at what we mean in terms of multidimensional element of poverty, it also requires a multidimensional approach to solution finding. We also believe that poverty is not natural. It is political. It is because of the political choices that those decision makers, those that are in positions of authority make. So, like I said, I'm originally from Zambia. The times of structural adjustment programs in Zambia was a very difficult time for Zambians. I am glad in terms of lessons learning that I lived through it. And so I can speak from having stood in that position and having walked through it. I stood on the queue to with a coupon because money didn't buy anything at that point to try and get food for us to eat at home. And so, it's really important to understand the role of decision makers, whether they're politicians or whether, as we know, uh, it's no longer just uh, those that are in positions of power in terms of the elected, it's also the multinationals, it's the business uh, sectors that all intersect to actually, I think, to what I would call to pursue and perpetuate a system of a global, global economy that is really uh, driven by wealth accumulation for a few at the cost and expense of the majority. 
And I would gladly welcome, I would welcome to hear something that is different when all evidence actually speaks to the contrary, when all evidence shows us that clearly, if it has been working, why do we still have millions of people in extreme poverty? Latest reports have told us that over 800 million people are now going to be left behind unless we do something that is different. Um, I've run out of time, but I'm hoping that I'll have another chance to speak. So let me just end by saying this. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, when she was asked uh, about human rights, she, she was asked where human rights started. And there's a famous quote that quite a number of you might know, where she said that unless human rights have meanings in the small households, where it might even be very difficult to count, where you won't find them on the maps, unless they have meaning there, then they'll have meaning nowhere. I want to say this evening that for economic growth to really be, have meaning, unless it can have meaning, positive meaning, in the lived experiences of the small households in the smallest villages and the smallest places, for those people that are marginalized and excluded, then economic growth has, lived its, has outlived its welcome and it's time for us to find an alternative to place on the table. Thank you. That's very powerful. Thank you so much, Amanda. <laughs> I'm sure you've got lots of questions. Hold on to them for a little while, because I'm going to have a bit of a conversation uh, with my two very esteemed guests here before we, we bring a couple more people in. So I'm extremely pleased to, to welcome uh, Professor Jajit Chandra and uh, Danny Kruger. Um, their um, biographies are in your, in your panel, but... Um, Jajit's professor splitting his time between no, no, uh, Kent and Cambridge. No, I only run the institute now. Oh, you just, just, run, the just run the institute. I'm so sorry. It's, but full, it's more than a full-time job. It's more, I bet, absolutely. <laughs> um, but with a strong background with the Bank of England and yep. also being a special advisor to the Treasury Committee. So we've got a lot of experience. And Daniel, yourself, you're an expert advisor to the Department of Culture. Um, you're a chair of a local uh, criminal justice uh, charity called Only Connect and has been a special advisor to David Cameron in opposition. So don't hold him responsible for Brexit. So... You have to have a Brexit joke in some, sometimes. But um, we've heard a huge amount from Amanda. Mm. I'm going to start with, with you, uh, Professor Judgett. Mm. You know, we've heard GDP... I mean, Amanda's kind of like told mm. a bit of a death, death knell there. You know, it's, is it really working? But why do we use it? It's got quite a considerable uh, foothold in terms of the way in which we consider our economy. Well, let me first thank you for inviting me here this evening. And I... I can't say how much I enjoyed Amanda's uh, talk. I think it was impassioned, caring, and everything you'd want from someone who was running Christian Aid. I think it's a remarkable um, set of points that, that, that she raised, and it's very hard to challenge them in any, any way. So you've given me a very hard task. Um, <laughs> um, I, 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 I think today is a remarkable day to have chosen to have this debate about GDP. I would imagine that um, someone told you from up there that this was the bright day to talk about this. 
On Sunday, um, the European Union and Britain decided upon the form in which it would leave the European Union. Um, the Institute produced its, the first analysis, that's my institute, run, mm. of the impact on GDP from that leaving. This earlier today, the government, set of government economists produced their impact and about two hours ago, the Bank of England produced their impact study as well. And they've all come up with very similar numbers in terms of the impact. So if I could just spell the number out, and then maybe we can use that as a point of departure to think about what GDP means. But I, I, I'll just cut me off. I'll try and do this in two or three minutes. So Good. The basic analysis suggests that leaving the European Union will leave us around 3% on average per person worse off than the alternative of staying in the European Union. It doesn't mean we're poorer. It just means if there's a line going up in time, the line from leaving the European Union on average per person on average is around 3% lower, which translates in current income terms to about £1,000 per person. Um, so what does that mean if I tell you that GDP is going to be 3% lower at some point in the future? Is it the whole story? Does it capture the anxiety? Does it capture the impact on the economy? Does it capture the particular impact on a region or a particular area that's producing goods for whom there will now be substitutes in Europe and from which people will lose their jobs? Will it capture the impact on our defence? Will it capture the impact on our um, intellectual property? Will it capture the impact on the city of London? It cannot. Mm. It, it's very much like a thermometer. It's telling you something about the temperature of the economy. It's telling you it's going to be a little bit cooler than it would otherwise be. And if I could use the analogy that uh, Amanda put forward, there's a lot of other things we need to measure to understand the state of the economy. So why are we so obsessed with it? What, it, what is it? Well, why we, I, I, to the extent to which it is a first part, I mean, I, I, I try to avoid going to the doctor, I'll leave it to others, but the first <laughs> thing they often do is take your temperature. So it's, mm. it's, it's a first pass. It's a statement of where we are in terms of production, expenditure, and income in the economy. Mm. And it's a good way of understanding a particular position. But what we don't do well enough is understand or decompose that aggregate number into the implications for different types of households across the distribution, for different regions, and in different industries. Now, part of that is our own fault in that we have limited patience. We'd rather go back to the internet or whatever we do in social media. Uh, it's partly my fault as an economist and, and my peers in not spending time explaining that underpinning that aggregate number are a lot of other numbers that add up to compose that particular number. Mm. And you need to understand what it means for you. It was a famous response to someone who said at the time of the referendum, I think it was in Newcastle, um, if you leave the European Union, said one of the Remain campaigners, your GDP will be lower. And this uh, chap in Newcastle, I won't attempt to do a Geordie accent, said, um, that's your GDP, not mine. And that's a classic statement of, of inequality or the sense in which there may be reason, regional disparity or something that is not being captured by that particular number. It doesn't mean it's not there. Mm. It's all there. It's all added up to that number. But it's not presented and doesn't necessarily give us a chance to think about it. And we know that inequality is, mm. is not picked up. I mean, we heard it very strongly from Amanda. I mean, both inequality between different communities and regions, but also, I think, the inequality in terms of uh, wealth inequality. So mm. what else can we use? Is there something different there? Well... well there are, you can measure inequality in income and inequality in wealth. Mm. Um, and you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, if you look at the inequality in income, it hasn't deteriorated very much in the last 30 years. There's just the same level of inequality we had 30 years ago. That doesn't mean I'm happy with the level of inequality I had 30 years ago. But the, 
the wide perception that it's deteriorated is in fact not right. And one of the reasons it hasn't deteriorated in the last 10 or 15 years, we've had minimum wage legislation that has raised the wages for people on low salaries and provided high, higher levels of employment. So in fact, against the grain of the information we often receive by people who just look at America and imagine that also goes on here, we haven't had the decline, uh, a, a, a deterioration in, in income inequality. Mm. And, and we had throughout the 20th century a very large reduction in wealth inequality as more and more of us started buying our own property. The, the, the prime determinant of wealth equality is the extent to which you own property or not. That's not to say it's a bad thing for people who don't own it, but actually throughout the 20th century, as more and more households bought their properties, wealth inequality fell on a secular level throughout that period. So when you look at the numbers, it can surprise you mm. as to the popular, and I tend to use the phrase man in the pub, but I mean person in the pub, and I may not even mean pub. Yes, you know, or person in the food bank, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> of which we've seen a massive... Well, I, I kind of feel that yeah. we may be reaching a hockey stick in terms of some of the statistics. But I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to Danny now, to move up from, from the sort of national mm. to a much more community level and a much more kind of local level. Do you, do you recognise, do you see, um, from your own experience and from at a community level, resonances with what Amanda was saying here in Britain? Yes, thanks. So th thanks again for having me as well. So um, just as explained in the introduction, my, I work as an advisor in government now, but for 10 years I've been doing work in London uh, with uh, prisoners and ex-offenders and with uh, children and young people at risk. So working with civil society organisations, the charity I set up and others to... Uh, to try and act both remedially with people for whom life has gone very badly wrong, uh, offenders and ex-offenders, and preventatively with children at risk. And the story of that 10 years is, um, uh, has been very instructive to me. We've definitely seen a, um, a growth in, in, in all sorts of forms of social responsibility. I don't think the one fault that I think David Cameron allowed people to... Uh, think is that he thought the big society was new. Of course, there's nothing new about uh, communities stepping forward and taking responsibility for themselves and each other and working collaboratively. Um, this is not. This is the, this is an ancient British tradition, uh, but uh, it, but, it, but it has grown over the last ten years as the state has f had to face the fact of of, of massive fiscal retren retrenchment, um, and and. The, the story of austerity of cuts in, in public spending has not fallen mostly on the big public services that the, that the media are concerned about, health and education and so on, or even welfare. Uh, it's fallen on local government. And the main funder of local charities traditionally was the state, the council, and that isn't there in the same way anymore. And uh, increasingly councils just act as, uh, as funders of social care. And they do the very critical, you know, high need, uh, work that is mandated by by central government and the, and frankly the stuff that they have to do. So all of the stuff that we all recognise is so important around prevention, around investing in communities and in charities, and community groups, faith groups, uh, just isn't coming from the public purse anymore. And uh, and and so what's happening instead is communities are stepping forward, and we see it obviously in the remedial sense with food banks, but we also see it increasingly. And I'm most excited by the way that. We have, we're having, I think, a sort of Victorian... Um, I always try to get this into Cameron's speeches and they never wanted to sound like we wanted to bring the Victorian era back. But, uh, but actually, there, there is something inspiring about the Victorian model of, 
of philanthropy and, civic, and self, mutual self-help. It wasn't all rich people helping poor people, it was communities helping each other. And I, and I, I just discern glimmers of this. So to speak positively, we've been speaking a bit gloomily about the state of the world. I think there is an amazing uh, wind of change blowing through our society in which people are responding, many of them to the, you know, the awful realities of life in our poorest communities, but stepping up in a really positive way. And I think the new model uh, is one where, where the government, and this is what I'm trying to achieve in my advisory role, uh, is an enabler of uh, healthy, resilient communities. And the job of government is not just to come in and fix problems as they present themselves, uh, or to just you know, be the monopoly funder of public services, but it exists to strengthen the foundations of our communities and to make those communities more resilient in the new world, healthy, strong, you know, organically able to prevent problems developing and to respond when crisis hits. So that's what I'm seeing, is all, all this genuine distress, uh, but also a new spirit of, of, of community self-help. And do you think, thank you, Danny, because I think, Jadjit, do you think there's a sort of way in which that community spirit, that community resilience can be sort of monetized or included in a kind of GDP plus kind of way of doing things? Or is it, is it so totally separate? Well, well, clearly, there are many things that people value that aren't in GDP, law mm. and order, the kind of community spirit um, that, Danny, that Danny's talking about. The question is whether they should be mm. uh, measured within some measure of the marketable production in activity. So a very good example of something that's not included that should be included is working at home. In a sense in which that's not included in the GDP statistics, but is clearly something that contributes to overall welfare. Um, and it's something for which there's not typically an exchange of payment f for, but nevertheless is something that uh, is valued by people. Mm. So we think about the things that are valued um, that would give us a better measure on, on, uh, on the progress of society. But, but, but I think I would say more important than that would be to sort of, th to, to again, go to the point I've already made, is to think about better statistics in terms of the regional uh, poverty levels that we have, regional life expectancy, homelessness, um, uh, uh, the incidence of, of psychiatric problems. These are all um, important social measures that we don't necessarily have at the correct level of granularity mm. to understand the problems that are faced. I've, I would agree with Danny that the impact of, of um, fiscal policy over the last uh, six, seven years has not been on the large aggregates. It's been pushed through local authorities in a particular way. But if we had more information on the problems in those areas, then that would be something that we could uh, force policymakers to address. It would seem to me you don't necessarily need to correct the GDP numbers in mm. there. But I think if you could, again, I go back to the point, really go down to the granular level and say, look, that, that fall in GDP has hit that bit of London very badly. Mm. It hasn't hit that bit of London. What are you going to do about it? I don't think we're seeing enough of that. Okay, I think that's really helpful in terms of, you know, what matters is what we measure, as it yes. were. So we've heard from your economic perspective, we've heard communities and also, you know, thank you, Danny, for bringing in the perspective in terms of local government. I'd like to move to business now, if I may, uh, and introduce Cal Bailey to just speak very very briefly, I'm a bit conscious of time, Cal. Um, but uh, Cal is um, a businessman, he's a director of NG Bailey, and he's also very active uh, in the Church of England as a lay reader, and has been part of Christian Aid's, a really important part of Christian Aid's SALT network, which is a network for business people, who are trying, business people who are trying to put their values into practice, if you like, and Cal is someone who's been working very strongly 
to, to try and work in a sort of ethical and sustainable way. So I just want to, to ask you to maybe share a few points from your own perspective, Cal, from, uh, from your work of trying to be uh, doing economics differently and doing business differently uh, within this debate. So. Okay, thank you. Um, I'll begin by saying I, I started as a business person here in London, um, training as an accountant, uh, with the goals that most young people had, and I hadn't worked out any sort of Christian approach to that at all, and abs absorbed what was there and worked with it, and saw lots of my colleagues, especially those 10 years older than me, really getting um, hollowed out, might be a word, I'd use all sorts of words. I've seen it in the legal profession, I've seen it in the accounting profession, I've seen it in now in business as well. Uh, people who frankly got bored with the primary goal being a budgetary goal every year. Um, those goals can still be difficult to achieve, um, so that bit's not boring, but somehow starting it all again on the 1st of January just doesn't excite the same level of interest it did 10 years ago, even if they're now running a bigger division or something. Um, and I've seen that in myself too. And in our business, I had slightly more ability as a shareholder as well as a senior manager to begin to adjust the goals. We were just the same as other businesses. We're in the world of construction. It's a hard world. Uh, you have to fight. Uh, for success on every single contract, but we started to adopt two goals instead of one in our business. Um, and my simplified version of it when I was talking to our people was we had a profit goal, and our secondary goal was to be responsible as well. So profitability and responsibility became our two goals. And we defined what we meant by the responsibility goal. To begin with, we are in the electrical and mechanical world, and so we're doing the stuff in buildings that contributes to climate change. We're installing boilers and running heating systems and then the electrics. Uh, so I thought the primary thing we should do as a business was to, first of all, measure our own carbon footprint and then help clients reduce theirs. And we've done that. Uh, we've done it for some very big clients indeed, including some of the biggest land, uh, land uh, property owners in London. Um, and that brings a very different feel in the business and a very different feel to executives who, to begin with, life's just got a lot more complicated. <laughs> uh, but it's certainly not boring. Uh, it's certainly not the same again as last year, only with higher numbers. And it gave a degree, I think, of interest and commitment, which I was delighted to see as well as a degree of frustration and what's all this carbon we've got to measure suddenly. Um, I think it gave them a new life, and mm -hmm. I would certainly say it did that for me. Uh, th thank you, Cal. It's fascinating. I'm, I'm just reminded about, Judge, your point about that sense of, well, you know, we, if we disaggregate in terms of the figures, it gives us, it gives us that information. Yes. And in some respects, the kind of the way in which GDP is used at the moment at that very, very top level that ignores that, both denies the passion, but also it hides what we really need to focus in on. Yes. Do you think there's ways in which we can kind of respond in, in, in practical terms around our GDP in the way that Cal's talked about? So, so it's interesting that Cal's talking about that. One of the things I, for example, the Institute and other, other areas is, is to get people to think about their own particular field. We have people working on macroeconomics, people working on social policy, quantitative labor and migration. 
And within their own budget plans, I also ask them to think of a, a plan for the whole institute as well. So they're supposed to think about doing things that helps the institute and the public good mm. of what we're trying to do. So people to have a what I call a sort of joint utility function as well as their own domestic utility yeah. function. So that, that's an interesting yeah. analogue with running what we do. But if yeah. I go back to your, your, yeah. your, your, your point, how can we um, get GDP um, to, to deal with things that aren't currently measured in there that we think are part of the production function. And of course, mm. one of the ways is to um, think about taxes for carbon out emissions in a particular way that will allow us to measure the amount that we use mm. and also possibly lead those to detracting from output if it's not done in a sustainable manner. Yeah. And these are things in which, uh, towards which many people are thinking of, of particular answers to. Yes. So I think at times what we're really arguing for is that a GDP that is running faster and yet is depleting scarce resources more quickly is a less valuable GDP than one might be growing less quickly, but not depleting national Absolutely. resources. And there's a lot of work in economics that yeah. to be proud of that's trying to do exactly that. Yeah. Hasn't yet transferred itself into direct measures of GDP. And one other point, if I may, um, is that it also applies to fiscal policy. So currently, when we think of fiscal policy, it's definitely just in terms of the overall deficit on the fiscal position or the overall surplus. But now we've got methods of looking at the whole of government accounts, the whole, all the assets government own, be amazed to think about the, the value of land held, for example, by the defence industries and the liabilities of government as well, which is the whole of the pension liabilities added up in a particular way. And if we're doing that properly across the whole of government, we get some very different positions mm -hmm. as to the overall net worth of government and what it should be doing to address them, where government by itself becomes much more forward-looking than just thinking about a particular deficit today. It's saying, how can we set our fiscal policy to uh, produce a series of uh, net worth numbers that help people in the future as they age and they have shortages in their pensions. And of course, the, that long-term agenda is, is absolutely critical when it comes to tackling climate change and being able to respond to our, our carbon footprint, as Amanda talked about, yes. particularly in her experience. And Danny, from a kind of community-based perspective, that, that sense of being able to kind of you know, the excitement and passion that, that, that Cal was talking about isn't found in money, and, and that's been exactly the same in terms of your experience too. It's something completely different. And I think it's important what Jadjit just said about uh, the whole of government accounts. Now being able to measure assets is, is so important because in communities what matters is often assets, not, not wealth. And we mm. naturally enough, we worry a lot about income uh, for community groups and for local government and so on, but actually the wealth that it exists in local places is extraordinary. Mm. Often public sector assets sitting there idle or not being w well used, which could potentially galvanise all sorts of really positive mm. community action. I'm a great fan of asset transfer, of handing over public assets to community trusts, mm. still held for the public, but then able to sort of galvanise all sorts of positive mm. social action. Can I, but can I just... I, so I'm very in favour of that whole agenda. I do think there's a concern, though, that we get into a sort of tyranny of numbers. And what mm. we're trying to find here is a new way of measuring, a new cal calculation that can prove to the sort of number gods that, <laughs> that, 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 this, that this work is worth doing. I and mean, we can do that to some extent. ONS does it. Um, you know, I've seen calculations that the value of unpaid work we, took, we mentioned is equivalent if it was sort of monetized, if pay people were paid at the kind of appropriate rate for all the taxing of their children they do all the housework they do all the you know if, if you 
paid to do the voluntary work you do, that we, we would, it, it is equivalent to the paid work in the economy to, to GDP. And I'm sure that's right, that instinctively is right. We all do probably equivalent to the amount of work we're mm. paid for, yes. unpaid, or families do, mm. you know, we do that. So that, so we can do those sums, but then again, are, is, are, is, is, should, we be, should we be seeing this? And I just want to raise quickly, our department, DCMS, has just overseen the World War I um, commemorations. Huge job, incredibly expensive. I hope we didn't have to justify to the Treasury mm. the value added that that would generate for UK PLC. We might have had, to, there might have been some small bit of protocol that would have to done along those lines. What is the cost benefit and you know, value of this mm. work? But actually, the government decided to spend a lot of money doing something totally pointless from a GDP point of view. And I hope we all think that was worth doing. And there's a whole bunch of stuff, I'm conscious of this for DCMS, we do all the loads of arts, heritage, culture stuff. There's, you know, we can prove its value to, to the economy, but, um, uh, and we can sort of monet, you know, quantify its value to people, but actually, should we be always trying to do that? Yeah, I think that's a good challenge. Cal, final comment, and then we're going to bring us I want to suggest question. it's got far more to do, the, the economy is not everything. Uh, we haven't got, we shouldn't be, the Treasury should not be the, the sole arbiter of where money gets spent. Surely what, what matters to us is the, one of the major things, the quality of our relationships. Uh, Amanda talks about the Dalits in Bangladesh. That's not our problem here, although no doubt we buy stuff that they may have made in pretty squalid circumstances. Um, but what we do have here are relationships in supply chains, which are appalling. Our relationships with customers, which are appalling. Our relationships within our own teams, which might be pretty appalling. I've seen that in our business. I've seen that in lots of businesses. Surely the quality of the management we have, the quality of our leadership, mm. they are things that have value in their own right, which are quite apart from economics. Yeah. And, and the relationships in our families. Yes. And are not subject to the number gods. I love that. So I'm going to bring Amanda in. And uh, it's time to, I'm going to be a bit cheeky, and it's time to kind of just open it up to yourselves so that we become a little bit more of a panel. I'm going to try and uh, have a bit of a conversation. Oh, there's a hand up already. Jodie <laughs> is doing brilliant stuff in terms of uh, questions and comments uh, with the microphone. So questions and comments. Jodie, um, there's a person there. Um, if you, is your protocol that people should just say who they are? So please do. Hello. Hi, my name's Claire Jackson-Pryor. I'm with the Garrow Initiative for Modern Money Studies. Um, I've been interested in listening to conversations that um, no one has mentioned that many, many countries around the world actually have control of their own currencies. Uh, as uh, the professor will know there, as he's uh, been working for the Bank of England, um, the way that government spending happens is that the money is created, issued into the system, and then taxed back out of it for inflationary purposes and to give money, value to money. Um, what worries me in hearing all of you speak is that uh, the power that is given to the people who, um, who run businesses, these big corporations, um, it comes from, a lot of it is, is the idea that they are the sole wealth creators at the top. They are providing the jobs and um, that allow us to pay taxes to pay for things, which isn't how it happens. Um, and as long as we are under the impression that the government spending is the only important thing in the economy, then that is never going to change. And we're always going to be putting forward ideas that are trapped in the same 
Uh, what's the word? Paradigm. Oh, that's it. <laughs> Sorry. I, yeah. I've done a bit of public speaking, but I'm still very nervous. It's, uh, you're great. Um, I mean, I, what I wanted to ask is what do the panel think of using something like the, the Gini coefficient instead of GDP or alongside it? Um, why don't we make more use of the central balances approach, which shows um, the, the different balances between government deficits, external, um, external surpluses in this country? and what's happening in the non-government sector, the private sector, what's happening to households and businesses. Because as we see in a country like the UK, where we <coughs> import more than we export, if the government doesn't run a deficit, then the private sector does. Mm. Yeah. Um, and also on the to topic of um, foreign aid or, or, and developing countries generally, what tends to happen is we go over there and we tell them that they've got to export instead of helping them to use their own currency issuing powers to build up their own country's wealth for themselves right. so that they can use what they already have more usefully for their own country. We want them to export and then import and they end up with huge foreign currency debts, which are not the same as having a debt in your own currency. Great. Thank you. Lots of points there, Claire. Thank you so much. Um, I think... So, Judge, that's that, that's that challenge again about kind of, you know, GDP, you know, it's, it doesn't, it's useful for some bits, but it doesn't for others. You know, we've had stuff about different balances <coughs> that Claire talked about, the happiness index and other things, so maybe have a reflect on that. And I kind of wonder whether, Amanda, there's something there from a, from a Christian aid perspective about understanding uh, the national interest in whose interest we operate. Um, so, Judge, I'll give a very quick answer. I, I, th th there's a... There's a fallacy that is the government can print money and that makes wealth. That's not where wealth comes from. Absolutely. No, it isn't. It, it, did, so it did sound like what you said. The perception that it did, that it did sound like that's control. what you said. And uh, I'd be happy. To, so, I, well, I, I, that's how I've interpreted what you said. Um, it's not exactly how it works. Um, the typical economy <coughs> is about 20% government consumption, 80% private consumption. On top of that is about 20% of transfers. So in the UK, government expenditure, total managed expenditure is about 40% of GDP. The rest of it is in the private sector, and of course, it's the government that's taxing the private sector, offsetting distortions where possible and raising whatever revenues it can for public goods, such as law and order and defense. And that's how the economy is, is, is very essentially structured. So, it, it, and within the private sector, Two-thirds of employment is in small firms, and all large firms started off at small, firm, at small firms once. So to think in your mind that, that people are thinking that the economy is run by a small number of people running very large firms is not, in fact, how uh, most people think it's structured at but all. There is it's a dynamic that... process uh, uh, with a large number of firm births and deaths in every year yeah. that is helping productivity in the economy. But Claire's point was about, you know, mm. that this sense that the wealth creators are at the top, as it were, and then it's at this kind of like trickly down. And I think there was, we were hearing a definite thing about a call for a, new, a different paradigm, a different way of looking at it. So do you think that's realistic? Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, we, let, me, let me take a step back. In the last 30 years, successive political parties have avoided the question of reforming our tax system, sorry, revenues. The position was taken some 30 years ago that you couldn't get elected in the UK if you started talking about changing taxes. So we've had a particular settlement 
that's mm. decided where taxes will be meted. So little, very little on capital taxation, very little on housing wealth, and not very well integrated with the new industries that have developed over the last 25 years. So you've got a taxation system that doesn't actually match the structure of the economy very well at all. And what we need is some courageous politicians to reform that tax system, we which, do. if I could finish, yeah. would then give us sufficient revenues to generate, uh, to stink about, think about, not stink, think about solving some of the problems that the country faces. Absolutely. And that's a much deeper question it's and requires a bit more political courage than I think we've had. I think that's a really good point. And Christian Aid, having got a bit of a track record mm. on working on tax for the last 10 years or so, would yeah. wholeheartedly agree with you. And, and actually, a lot of the general public would as well. I mean, in, in some of the polling that we've done as Christian Aid, asking people, what's your view around taxation? Mm. Uh, you know, four out of five people have said they would not spend money or buy from businesses that, that, that evade tax or, or dodge tax, and they want the government to tighten things up. Of course, practice is something else, but that's not the story. Um, so, Amanda, could you, you any reflections there, about, particularly from an international perspective? Okay, um, thanks. I, I guess maybe just two points, two reflections from me. Uh, the first one is, um, I think you mentioned something about what do we tell, you know, what we tell developing countries. <clears throat> there are two things. One, we take our own models to developing countries, and uh, we want developing countries to adopt those models. And we might expect them to vary them a little bit here and there, but the principle is the same. So if the model itself, and I guess this is what I was trying to say, if the model itself is faulty, then we are already taking a faulty model uh, in, in environments that actually are not geared up for, for, for any model, really, uh, in some extent. And there I'm being a bit uh, pessimistic. The second element is, um, it, by and large, it comes with the national interests. Right? And uh, whether you look at uh, the fact that OECD countries have refused for the United Nations, for example, to have a tax body that can really interrogate that taxation, right? Mm. That is out of uh, national interest and self-preservation, right? Um, let, let me be a bit provoking, provocative here uh, and, and suggest that um, one of the key challenges of the current models of the economy, of defining what the economy is, what matters within the economy, what gets measured, is that actually, over generations, you can go back centuries, right? the model has always had one key driver at its heart, which is, for me, to get better and irrespective of what the cost is on you and your environment. That, that, that's, you know, and yes, of course, it's changing slowly. We're seeing, you know, some gains somewhere. I'll give you an example, which is uh, something that Christian Aid has been working on. We've been challenging H HSBC. Can I use that example? Yes? I will use it You've now. done it. Well, I, I, I've started. I might as well finish. Um, <laughs> don't don't right. be shy. They're big enough to yeah. take it. So. Yes. Yeah. On, the, on, on, the, on, on investing and supporting yeah. core power, right? Both. And uh, they're okay to say, yes, we'll stop investing in that in developed countries. But in some of the developing countries, we will continue. What is the driver for that? I guess 
my short answer to you, if I go round and round in circles, but my short answer is that uh, our economic models were not designed, as far as I'm concerned, for what us as Christian aid see the holistic approach to human flourishing. And that's why I said, do we need to not redefine, because I think redefine is about tweaking at the ages, right? Do we need an overhaul of it? And I think we've got economists in our world, in this country, in other countries, that actually can put an alternative, but it's not an easy job. I mean, it's not easy because there are a lot of interests that will keep it in the way it is. I'm going to go back mm. to a uh, question. Maybe take a couple this time. Uh, we've got one there and the man with the beard there. So if we could take you two. Um, thank you. Hello. Um, my name is Alexandra Knaplianik. I work for an organization called uh, the Philosophy Foundation, teaching critical thinking to children and adults in community and workplace. And my question is, I mean, we're talking about the alternatives to GDP and um, there are examples elsewhere in the world of such alternative indexes such as the Human Development Index of UN and the famous Bhutanese uh, Gross Happiness Index. So I would be very interested to hear the opinion of the panel on those kind of initiatives and what we can learn from them. Great, thank you. And uh, the gentleman with the beard, thank you. Good evening, uh, my name is Matt Meyer. I'm uh, working for an organization called The Economy for the Common Good. Um, Jajit, first I want to point out, uh, it's very handy that you pointed out that inequality in the UK didn't massively change in the last 30 years. That's because it changed massively just in the 10 years before in the 80s. And the Gini coefficient jumped by 30% during that time. Um, Economy for the Common Good actually has uh, a way to measure the impact or the comp contribution of a company towards the common good. My question to all of you is, can you actually imagine an economy that sets at its very purpose pursuing the common good and not pursuing growth? Because we're now living in a world where we cannot afford to pursue economic growth anymore. We now need to look at how we can take all this material wealth and make it more equal and more sustainable. <coughs> Great, thank you so much. So, uh, Alexander's question about views on alternative indexes, and I think Matt's provocative thing about can we even imagine that kind of different way? So, I mean, Cal, from a business perspective, um, do, do, you've already started to try and think about things differently. I mean, how much space do you feel that you've had to be able to respond differently? I'm very happy. I, I'm afraid I don't know the index you were talking about, so I can't comment on it. Um, but I'm very happy to contemplate a world with a very different business model. And I jolly well think we should, because I think this one's a tired one, and it's not working for the people it needs to work for. Um, <laughs> profit in business is our challenge. We are, as business people, trained to seek profit, as a dog seeks food. Um, and what my reflection on profit is profit to a business is like air to an animal or a human. We need air to survive. That is not to say we spend most minutes of most days looking for air. Um, it is not that... Uh, we, we, it is perfectly possible for businesses to 
pursue other goals. We just need to get used to a totally different world in which our boss asks different things of us, and so do the shareholders. Um, profit is no more than something we've got used to chasing, which we've got used to measuring, and which uh, we've lost the imagination to find alternatives to replace or put alongside it. And I think we need to invent better worlds than we have and work hard to find them. Mm. I mean, Danny, you talked before about resilient communities and the way in which people are kind of almost trying to imagine that. I mean, do you, do you feel that there's the opportunity there? How, yes. Are we brave enough to imagine something different? <laughs> yes, and I don't think it's too difficult to imagine. And in fact, it's the, it's the old idea of business before we, you know, it's a recent and modern idea that businesses exist to produce, pursue profit. They, didn't, they never set up in that way. This is a new idea that, um, that, that the sort of fiduciary duty of, of, of uh, the executive is to return profits to shareholders. Uh, businesses exist for a purpose, which is to serve the public. Uh, and they need to cover their costs every year. And if they're returning some, uh, uh, making returns to capital investors, that's necessary too. But so, so I don't think it's a difficult thing to imagine. Um, it's difficult to get there, <laughs> I guess. Difficult to do. I mean, can I just speak up for growth as a, as a concept? I don't think, I, I worry a bit about the idea that growth is a problem in itself. Um, obviously, it's about what is growing. I mean, growth feels to me a very godly principle. Uh, you know, creativity, invention, building, cultivating, making more things where there were less things before feel, that feels to me like a, you know, a noble pursuit for mankind and, uh, and sort of what we're here for in a way. Uh, the, the problem is when we fetishize it, make an idol out of the things. Uh, and so abundance is good, but it's abundant life we're supposed to be pursuing rather than abundant possessions. And, mm -hmm. uh, and how we, what the, the model of growth therefore is, should be one in which full rich lives are pursued. I suppose the, the trying to imagine this, it's, it's uh, people talk about inclusive growth. I think there is a, a model that we, that is a bit of a straw man. Not many people actually believe in it, but it is, has become the common practice, particularly of big corporations um, who are owned by shareholders who don't even know they own the company because of the way that ownership is split and sold and divided up. And ultimately we probably as pension holders might be the owners. But anyway, uh, the ownership model makes it very difficult. But what we want, rather than companies and economies growing and then redistributing through national welfare policies, which actually often um, uh, create further problems of their own, we should be uh, we should be seeking a model whereby the, the social good is is fulfilled in the growth itself, so in the practice of businesses we've been hearing about. Uh, and and I, and I really want to judge its point about the long-term value of this sort of economy because it, it might be that. GDP or, or local growth is slower in the meantime, but long term, I do think there's value in saying we'd like to see the economy grow over time. It's just how it's done and, uh, and, and the purpose of all our activity not being all about growth, all, all about uh, uh, more money. I guess um, I'm reminded by, uh, of St. Oscar Romero who said we're called to not to have more but to be more mm. so that sense of flourishing mm. but I think you know the, there is a question about that, that rather jargonistic thing of planetary boundaries constantly having more constantly having growing more you know we've raised the point about sustainability um, so, so judge it do you think from the, from what we've talked about the, that 
I suppose it's that leap from imagining to putting into practice. But it feels to me that we have got lots of ideas. There are different indices. So what, what is stopping us kind of like from really um, changing GDP in a big way? I'll just run through some of the points research. briefly. That yep. raised. On, on these new ways of measuring, the human development index is, is particularly interesting because what you want from an index is scientific replication. So if you go to the same set of people, mm -hmm. will you get the same result next time or a different result? The human development index, because it's adding up things like life expectancy and, and variance in income and, and uh, infant mortality and other things, is a sensible thing because we can compare across countries. Things when we're looking at happiness, I'm afraid I'm not at all interested in at all. It's subjective, it's not something that you can sample the same set of people on and look at them against economic outcomes and get something that economists would call a consistent mapping from subject subjective views and outcomes. So I'm not terribly interested in, in, in that kind of stuff. The point about raising that there was no deterioration in the Gini coefficient over income over the last 30 years was not that there hadn't been a deterioration in the late 70s and early 80s. I lived through that period and I understand very well the extent to which that was associated with strife in this country. I was around and I knew, I know what it was like. You don't have to, uh, I certainly don't want to give a talk about the winter of discontent and my worry that we might be heading towards something similar at the moment given everything that's going on politically. But my point was simply that those who've been talking about a deterioration in the last five or six years are missing the point that actually there hasn't been much of a deterioration over that period. So I apologize if I wasn't being clear on that point. It was only to do with uh, people's observations on the recent past. I, I, I think in all of what we're talking about is we're talking about a second objective for policy. GDP may be a sensible way of thinking about income per head. We live in a world in which income per heads, it, for example, in the UK, have been doubling every 30 years or so. So I am uh, twice as well off as my parents at their age. And, and I'm, I'm very pleased about that. And I've got things that they didn't have at, um, at their age. I also intend to live for longer. I'm lucky that they're still around. That's a benefit that they've got. I think whether we believe it or not, we do live in a safer country than it was in the period I've just described in the 1970s with less violence and, believe it or not, fewer murders uh, than we saw in the past. But all of that that I'm talking about is good governance. And, and it, we need good governance in the developing world. Again, the relationships between transnational corporations and governments in developing countries is often the root of the problems in those countries. It's not GDP per se. It's certainly not economists trying to think about offsetting distortions. It's, it's often the political and, uh, and social failure in those economies that is itself not to do with GDP. It's about good governance. And if we can make a point about profits, that's also part of good governance. Profits that are generated by firms that have too much monopoly power don't necessarily need to be redistributed, they need to be regulated. We need monopolies and mergers commissions to act with teeth to break up these things when they can. That, it seems to me, is good governance. And it's completely consistent with continuing to measure progress in the economy by measures of output that are dealing with um, the amount that we're producing, but thinking very hard about minimizing inequalities, um, minimizing profit maximization in small numbers of industries where we can break it up, and providing an appropriate role for the state for regulating those industries. And where the regulation has failed, we should think again. That's, I think, a separate question to GDP. Okay, but I guess Sorry. there is a question there, isn't there? If, mm. we're, if we're not really measuring some of those other things, like mm. inequalities or, you know, 
resilience, you know, happiness. Sorry that, oh. sorry that a happiness index makes you miserable. But, you know, oh, yeah. I think there is that sense in which, um, you know, how, how, how can you have good governance? How can you have good policy if you're not actually having some of the evidence that actually influences it? But that's probably another debate. I'm very conscious of the time. So I'm okay. going to now ask you in true style, you've, you've got like, you know, one final kind of wrap-up comment. Um, and I'm going to... Start with you and go along, go along with it so that because she's my boss, oh, okay. we're going to give her the last word. Quite right. So just <laughs> one final kind of things to, to sort of sum up, or that you want uh, everyone to to go away with. So don't concentrate on GDP. Don't concentrate on happiness. Spend time trying to develop a complete picture of the economy at, at every level. Think about the distribution of income. Think about regional uh, income. Think about income in different areas. Like your temperature. GDP is just one measure of your health. There's a lot of other things you have to look at. So train yourself to look at it. And if you haven't got uh, the time or the ability, come to the Institute and, and we'll be happy to help you follow these kinds of things. You know, it, it's, it's a much more complicated thing. Okay. Uh, what, what an answer to finish on. Danny, yeah. over to you. Um, I'd like us to think about less about income and more about capital and more about assets and how we can capitalize our communities better, how we can actually get real wealth. Uh, into local places and so let's think about large-scale transfers of, of income and more about how we can see, uh, see, see real wealth invested in places. Thank you. Cal. Uh, I'd like to encourage you to be far more demanding of businesses than we're accustomed to be <laughs> in all the ways that you can be demanding. For example, most people are shareholders if only through your pension schemes mm demand of your pension trustees that they demand things of their, of their companies they're invested in. It's only by pressure that companies will respond, otherwise they'll take the easy route. Mm. And if anyone wants to carry this conversation on afterwards in the pub or somewhere similar, I'm game on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there is, I think there's some information about the SALT network at the front as well. So Amanda. Um, what would I like you to take away? Um, that Britain was at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution. And that is because people were brave, courageous to come up and test new ideas and new models. I think that I'm not um, being alarmist when I say that we need new alternatives. So I would say when we talk about profit, let's redefine profit. It shouldn't be about money. Let it be about something else. When we talk about GDP, that yes, it's true, that's one indicator, but let's come up with other alternatives that mean that we are looking. Um, I really like what, was it Matt, that says economy for the common good rather than economic growth. I think for me that's, what, that's my takeaway from this debate. What does an economy and economic models for the common good look like? And what do we need to put in place? Because at the end of the day, what gets measured gets done. So if we continue with the measure of GDP, that's what we're going to focus on. Let's change this. Well, well, we could be here for another couple of hours, but I, unfortunately, we have reached the end of our time. Uh, fantastic contributions from uh, right across our panel. Lots and lots of food for thought. And I think your round of applause said it at the end in terms of what we're trying to do, that, that sense of what are we here for? We're here for human flourishing and also for a sustainable planet. So as Cal has left us ringing in 
uh, ringing in our ears, that desire to be, to be more demanding, <coughs> be more demanding of business, be more demanding of governments and politicians, and be, 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 be more demanding of our economists. And, and I think also be more demanding of ourselves in terms of being really out there and committed to find an economy that reflects human flourishing so that we can truly not just have more, but be more. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you to St. Paul's and the Institute. There's more information about both on, on your way out, I think, both St. Paul's and Christian Aid. Um, thank you for being here and braving a cold and rainy night. And thank you, please join me in thanking my panel. Uh, thank you.